0: Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is J-Love. I'm your host. Thank you so much for tuning in again. This is episode 41. and I'm very, very honored and humbled to have wonderful guests so far. And today is not an exception. Today we have Kellen Flukiger from Canada. Before I introduce my guest, I want to introduce my book which is a gift from adversity. My, my book is about my life. Subtitle is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. And I wrote this book after I've done tons of motivational speech and guest speaker opportunities that people ask me if I have a book, and I didn't. So I felt very really compelled to tell my story through the publication. After I published my book in 2020, which is now available on Amazon, a lot of people reached out to me and told me they are also the victim of sexual abuse, domestic violence, homelessness, bullying, and I felt compelled to create a platform where people can discuss and talk about their adversities and tools that they use to overcome and a gift that came from it. So let's invite our guest tonight. Thank you so much for being here, Callan.
1: Thank you for having me. I want to first honor you. A, a podcast or the kinds of things that you're doing is the labor of love. There's a lot of work that goes into it with the desire to help others and to add good to the world. That's a phrase that I use, and I really appreciate your work, your heart, your desire to do that kind of good and so thank you for what you're doing
0: that was very touching thank you yes you are so right it goes a, a lot to it uh, behind the scene and you know but it's wonderful to have you tonight so can you tell our audience your name and what you do
1: <clears throat> my name's kellen Flukeger. very complicated Flukeger is a difficult name Um, What do I do? Well, the man I am today is quite different than what I was 15 years ago. Something happened in 2007, which we'll get into in the story that changed my life. But today, I'm a coach. I'm an author. I have clients around the world. And like Judy, I've written books. Uh, I happen to have written a zillion, like 16 books, and I have six more underway. But it doesn't matter how many. What's important is that your story, your change, and your work matters. And so I help people, my goal for 2022 is to help 10 million people to discover, develop, and serve with their divine gifts. So that's what I do today, is to help people uh, understand and then live into the truth of who they really are as divine beings with an important purpose here. Wonderful. And Kelly,
0: what is the website or social media handle that people can reach out or people can find more about your books or your work?
1: You know, with a weird name, like Kellen Flukiger, I can't hide. So if someone can't find me, there's only two reasons. One is they're not looking or two, they're spelling my name wrong. It's spelled right on the screen. And so as long as you spell it, I'm on Google. Uh, I'm on Amazon with books. I'm on Facebook several places. I'm on Instagram and YouTube and LinkedIn. I don't do some of the others, but I'm really easy to find because my name is so uh, peculiar.
0: Well, and When I went
1: if- to get my website, I didn't have any competition, right? <laughs> like I didn't have to buy it. It was $2 because like who would, who would want www.kellenflukiger.com except me.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And then where in Canada are you located?
1: I'm in Alberta. The Canadian provinces are huge. Like Canada is bigger than the U.S., but there's only 10 provinces. So every province in Canada is like gigantic. Alberta is bigger than Texas, for example, and it's uh, straight above Montana. So I'm on the west part of Canada. I used to live in phoenix and if you draw a line between phoenix and santa claus at the north pole you go through my front yard in edmonton so i live in the frozen north in edmonton alberta
0: so just as i talk that edmonton has very special memory that my host family when i was 18 years old a long time ago took me during the school vacation we uh, drove from Washington state to Edmonton Canada and we went to the biggest mall by then uh, we were in different floors had themes I think we were like a traffic theme like you know floor I remember that um that we were the amusement park inside of the mall
1: Yeah, there's. it's called West Edmonton Mall, West Ed for short. And it, for very many years, was the largest mall in the world. It has a big pirate ship as like an attraction. It has a huge amusement park with roller coasters. It has a full-size hockey rink. It has like six or seven of those at different ends. And it literally is, number one, big enough to get lost in, and two, the hallways and chambers there's so many that there's lots of people that live in there and they actually call them mall rats so there's people that live just enormous that place
0: yeah that's crazy so that's my connection to edmonton um <laughs> so kellen thank you so much for being here tonight let's move on to our first question which is the adversity so what was your adversity?
1: I was raised in a home where the discipline that I received as a child today would be felony child abuse, and I would be removed from the home. My mom got married young, and she was really fanatic about religion and discipline a certain way, so I got beat a lot, a lot of physical and emotional abuse that was quite serious. I remember even all the way through high school, uh, like getting dressed last in the locker room at PE because i didn't want people to see i was black and blue because there was something wrong with me like why am i so bad that i you know i'm I, i'm black and blue and that sort of thing what happened with that is i left home at 17 and i believed with all my heart that there was something wrong with me like i was i was broken and everything was sort of my fault and i never I was always frightened. I never talked to anyone about any of it. And so I lived the next 35 years, from 17 until I was 52. That's a long time, never speaking to anyone, living uh, a life of creating big success. I got good careers, and then I would internally feel like I didn't deserve this, so I would sabotage it. I would do things that would wreck it. And then I would do it again and do it again. So in those 35 years, I was married and divorced three times. I created huge career success several times and then lost the jobs. I was in and out of rehab. I had addiction problems and everything with all of that conflict uh, in my heart. And, And the silly thing, it's silly now, but at the time, I didn't realize that you could actually get help. So I never talked to anyone. I never got help. I thought I was supposed to do it all myself and that there was something wrong with me if I couldn't. So I was alone. My family sort of disowned me. I was taken off the Christmas card list and nobody nobody talked to me. And I was basically alone for 35 years and ruining my life and other lives around me uh, because of my dysfunctional attitude belief about myself and about life so that was the hardship and it went everything from like my addictions were severe at one point i had a three thousand dollar a week cocaine habit and i was making so much money that didn't matter so i was never homeless i was sort of living this double life where on the outside it looked like i was successful and behind the scenes i was an absolute disaster so that's what I struggled with and my ex-spouses and my kids and everything suffered the consequences of having a someone that broken uh, as a role model, which was obviously bad. So that was really the, the situation. I mean, there's lots of terrible details and I wrote a book like you and it's called Tightrope of Depression, my journey from darkness, despair and death. To light, love, and life. And during that time, I attempted suicide a couple times. And, you know, as, as ugly as you can think of it, the answer is yes. So that was the adversity, the cause, the effects. And that went on for till 2007. It, everything abruptly changed in 2007. So that's what happened. And that's the mess that I created and lived in for those years.
0: Well. Kellen, I cannot thank you enough for sharing bravely with our audience. And adversity is something or abuse is something that people are afraid to talk about. And people sabotage themselves. Not only like what you said about your life, but you definitely affect somebody's lives around you. And when you are in the middle of these adversities, you just don't even know that you're broken. You just even know what you are doing.
1: Well, I I had, I mean, I attracted as life partners, women that I married, broken people. One of the women was raised by an alcoholic stepfather and was told she wasn't wanted. But I didn't know what that did to a person. So I didn't help her either. I didn't know. And I had another woman that I was married to whose mom committed suicide when she was 12. And she was lied to about that until she was 21 because her dad didn't want to alienate her. And then when she found out, you know, the world exploded. And you know, but so when you're broken, like I was, you attract broken people. And I didn't know until now, these years now, what all that sort of thing did to anybody. So I was no help. And I didn't know how to offer help. And I didn't know how to ask for help. I only I did the one thing I knew how to do. And the one thing I knew how to do, I knew how to make money. So I made a lot of money and sort of imagined that making a lot of money was going to fix everything. And of course it doesn't. It just allows you to dig deeper holes for your misery.
0: And I really appreciate you, because sometimes gender um, plays role for speaking out. Like sometimes I would say men are considered, you know, the breadwinner, like, you know, just don't whine, don't cry. Just, you know, be a man, there's a space for, for that. So can you explain our audience maybe how hard it was, um, the gender role, the, when gen- gender baby's role actually played, how you have were not able to express? Was that maybe...
1: It was a huge there? thing. Yeah. It was a huge thing during my second marriage. So after after my first marriage, I had two kids in that marriage. My mom didn't like the fact that I got divorced, and so she wouldn't allow me to bring my kids to visit her. Uh, And then I got married again, and my my second wife didn't like the fact that I had kids from an earlier marriage because that somehow contaminated our relationship. So my mom and my new wife didn't like it. So I kind of neglected those two kids and started a new family. I mean, I paid all my child support and stuff. It wasn't like that. I was always very faithful in that, but I didn't visit them. I wasn't in their life and I felt awful. And that was another conflict. So I felt like I was torn between being a decent dad to those two kids or, you know, sacrificing this need I had to get my mother's approval which I never got as a kid and somehow I needed that and and so anyway when I would visit with my second wife and we started having kids my mom then still used to like find fault with everything I did you're selfish you're not doing this and she would continue to do that and I believed it so I ate it up I thought okay I must really suck you know and it was this internal, pressure I, I remember just sometimes by myself screaming not knowing what was wrong with me'm I mean, I'm grown up I have a good job I make more money than my dad ever even heard of and I'm still not okay I'm I'm something's fundamentally wrong with me so I kept that all inside uh for decades and finally I wrote the story about myself and started talking to counselors and stuff after 2007 when that Abrupt change happened. And yeah, I was so scared when I wrote Tightrope that even after I wrote it, I didn't publish it for a year because I was afraid of the fallout of having been open and honest. And, you know, these years later, now it's been 10 years, I'm, I'm not afraid to talk about anything anymore, but it used to scare the crap out of me for exactly the reason you said If you were any kind of a man, you'd be able to suck this up and fix it and all the rest of the crap. Never mind that you uh, had all that stuff happen to you. That's no big deal. The the difficult thing for me is I had, there were six kids and my, my mom had six kids and they were in two groups of three. My older sister got... The kinds of punishments that I did. And she was a girl. I remember my mom beating my older sister and I was freaking out thinking, okay, you know, you beat me. I'm a boy at least, but she's a girl. Like you can't do that and and wishing that I would die when she'd beat me because I was so awful. Now, my mom eventually grew up. So the younger three, which were separated kind of into two groups of three, they had a different growing up experience. And when one of my younger sisters read the book I wrote about myself, about tightrope, she argued with me. She didn't believe that any of those things actually happened. So my mom changed. She grew up over the years as she got married or as she lived, you know, had more kids and stuff like that. So that was good for her and good for the younger three, but it further alienated me because the younger three of my brothers and sisters, they don't believe anything. They don't believe anything. My older sister, she knows. She read the book and she knows. So she, you know, she has not done that. The younger three, they're like thinking I'm making things up and exaggerating and all that sort of stuff. And of course, it's not so. And I didn't write it as an accusatory book. I didn't yell at anybody. I just told the story of my life. But you're right on the money. It is important So if any of your listeners are wondering, it's important and powerful, regardless of what somebody thinks you ought to do as a man or anything else, that is not true, it's not helpful, and it is not right. So get the help you need. I don't care what your gender is, and I don't care who says what, it's not serving you and helping you be the best that you can be by keeping silent.
0: Well, it's very powerful. And as I'm a journalist, and then I've been journalist for the past three years, and then I've been author, I've been advocating these issues, and I've interviewed really hard cases, like, such as human trafficking and sexual assault. And then a lot of times, depending on the country as well, they don't even get a systematic support, like a court, a police, they don't even recognize rape as a crime, and they don't even recognize mental health is something that you should talk about. And then I think after the pandemic, especially, it's getting more popular. And then I remember, like, I never know what was wrong with me until I came to America in college. And then I was given this diagnosis called PTSD, and I've never heard of that. But then post-traumatic stress um, disorder became very popular after 2011, when we had a big earthquake in Japan. And then a lot of people started to talk about the word PTSD as is on Japanese TV shows, etc. Then Me Too movement came on and the Me Too movement never happened. So it's just like, as the time evolves, it may get easier, but as where you, it depends on where you are. Like, you know, in Japan or maybe different countries, these t- topics are usually taboo. So I don't know anything about Canada Growing up in Canada, was there any sort of mental health talk or DCF, any kind of advocacy that you were aware of or you were given information for or none of them existed?
1: So I I was actually born and raised in the U.S. I was born in San Francisco and raised in California. Uh, Coming to Canada was part of later in my career. And I have dual citizenship now, so I'm back and forth as I I want to. But anyway, no, the answer is no. You're not supposed to talk. It's all private. It's in the family. And nobody talked about mental health. And the only thing that was said about mental health during my entire childhood and even young adulthood was derogatory terms like calling someone a retard because they were somehow behind or whatever. And the idea that there was some kind of mental illness, whether it's depression or bipolar or PTSD or anxiety or any of that stuff, that was like you're making this up. It's all in your head. Suck it up and get it together. That that was the complete substance of all of it. There was no such thing.
0: Yes, unfortunately. Oh, I didn't realize that you grew up in America. But, you know, I thought America was a lot more advanced than Japan.
1: Well, it might be now. I don't know. I'm not. I haven't ever been to Japan. I've been to Europe and a lot of other places, but never uh, in Japan and uh, in Canada and the U.S. What I'm noticing now is there's a lot more conversation about it. Like when Robin Williams committed suicide a little while ago, and it was depression. What what I see happening is when something like that happens, it jumps up in the news and we talk about it a lot for a while, and then it sort of fades back down into the to yesterday's news. I do notice that in the last three or four years, particularly with this COVID thing, there's been a lot more conversation. It's a lot more open and there's a lot more help offered, you know, suicide helplines and all that sort of stuff. When I was, you got to remember, I'm 66. So growing up in the 60s and 70s, there was no such thing. I never even heard of it. I I graduated from high school in 1973 and I'd never heard of such a thing. And I never heard of something like that until like the 90s, which is still 30 years ago, but I was already 45 and in the middle of this mess by then.
0: Yes. It's it's very, very sad that I was raised in very, very abusive home um, where I had no idea, like, no, to be honest with you, like where to go, how to get help. I didn't even know the thing was called sexual abuse until later on in my life. Cause I had no idea, there was no talk, there was no education. And I think a lot of people suffer. Um, and then the reason why I wanted to create this platform is that people can understand the magnitude of the trauma that we experience in our life can completely change our life path and it affects so many years although the incident may have lasted a few years span. So how old do you think you were when the abuse was the most severe?
1: I don't know. My entire memory of childhood was one of violence. Uh, My greatest memory of childhood is fear. Like, my my mom used to read to us, so I remember her voice reading, and that was soothing and beautiful, and she played the piano well, and when we'd go to bed at night, I remember her playing the piano and singing, and that was a beautiful sound, and I, I, I remember those times, and they're near and dear to my heart, but the greatest memory of my childhood, the powerful ones, are hiding in my room, wondering why it was so bad that I had to get beat every day. Uh, You know, some particularly bad ones stand out in my mind. We had a rule not to go out. My parents were gone, and for some reason, there were three of us in the older group my sister, me, and then my brother. That was the older three kids. And my younger brother and I were home. We went outside one day to play football in the street with some other kids, and we did. And then we came back in. And for some reason, my mom came home and she suspected we'd gone out. And so she asked, and I lied, and my little brother lied, but he didn't do that very well. So, he knew, as she knew, and so she asked him, and he confessed, and so she spanked him, and you know more than he deserved, but spanked him and sent to, sent him to bed because she didn't want him to see what came next. And she just beat the shit out of me because I was the older person. And I remember hiding in the corner of the kitchen, wishing I would die, not to escape the pain but because that was the only way in my mind I could conceive that my mom would get in trouble for what she was doing. I wanted to die. And that wasn't the only time. I remember wishing that a lot. I wished I would die so that somebody would find out. And again, it seems difficult to understand now, but telling someone, tattling on my mom, just was not in the cards it was too horrifying frightening to do such a thing
0: yes i i never understood why my father was beating me up so much to the point i couldn't even breathe or i couldn't even feel and i just didn't know why and i didn't know what triggered him it's sometimes like as simple as the baseball team that he liked lost the game, he started to scream and then just throw a tantrum. And then I don't know, like as a child, when your caretaker who's supposed to protect you is the monster that you have to live with and the perpetrator that you cannot escape, you are completely trapped and you just have nowhere to go, absolutely nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. Did you have I've, any friend? I felt
1: like that, what's that?
0: Did you have any friend growing up when you are?
1: So this is no, I didn't. I didn't learn how to, I did not learn how to have a friend. I When I was in first grade, I skipped a grade. So my I was intellectually really advanced. So I skipped a grade, almost two grades. And so I was really young. And my social skills were way behind. So I didn't fit into my school grades at all. And it was funny because the the premise of my mom's enforcement was religion. But she didn't even allow me to have friends at church because she said, Oh, all those parents, they're not they're not strict enough. So, like my house was never the house that friends came over to. Uh, you you never, nobody came to my house and I wasn't allowed to go over anybody else's house either. Like I can count on one hand, the number of times I was allowed to go into one of my neighbor's houses. And I was just complete isolation. And I, I didn't know that was weird. I didn't know that was not okay. You know, all those things. And yeah, you know, it was. Yeah, I felt completely isolated, and I was completely isolated, and I didn't know how to undo that. So, no, I didn't have any friends. I didn't have any close friends. I, I may have had three in my entire life, and starting as an adult, I didn't have any as uh, any as a kid.
0: Wow, I'm very sorry to hear all of this, Callan. And then I really can't think enough for sharing bravely with our audience because sometimes as a man like you said you know it's hard to talk about and then people hide and then like you said like you know you kept it for most of your life like really long time and now you're speaking out like how do you think it was truly affecting you for you to not have the platform for you to, for you to not know how to get help and for you to not really understand or logically or was able to put the words to it, how did it affect you?
1: Well, it ruined my life. I wasn't going to get better. I wasn't going to fix this on my own. I was 52 years old and was living in the height of all this. And what changed the game was a divine intervention, uh, some miraculous things that happened in a short period of time that gave me the invitation to do something different. Up until August of 2007, I was, I was completely locked in the cycle of self-loathing, self-sabotage. I was single again for the third time. And I was, I had just attempted suicide a couple times. So I did not get out of this on my own. I was invited uh you can call it whatever you want in a miraculous way to change and so i would not have done this on my own i didn't somehow figure it out uh i had a miraculous event that woke me up to the point that i thought i i've got to change i have no idea what i'm gonna do and i can tell you i mean it's not a secret i wrote about it in tightrope in august of 2007 I came home from work and I was making all that kind of money. And I was a drug addict and I had four, I have 10 kids. So four of my 10 kids were living with me. Three were grown up and married and three were with my last ex-wife. And I came home on that Friday night and I was gonna go out and party for the weekend. I might've come back Monday or Tuesday and I got ready to go outside and before I did, I felt compelled to turn on the television. And that doesn't sound like anything, except I wasn't a TV watcher. And I picked up the remote and realized I didn't know how to operate it. I mean, I'd had, you know, people from the store come in and put in big stuff, but I didn't know how to use any of it. So I looked at it and thought, hmm. And I asked one of the kids and my 16-year-old daughter, you know, she punched the buttons and threw at the remote at me, right? And so I sat down and the program turned on to something called Intervention. I'd never heard of it, but Intervention's a reality TV show where people stage interventions for busted loved ones. So I watched about 10 minutes of it, and I thought, and the protagonist was a high-ranking executive with a cocaine problem, right? So I'm watching myself on TV, and I watched it for about 10 minutes, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not watching this crap. So I turned it off, and I went and did some other stuff and got ready to go out, and then I felt Like I had to turn on the TV again. So, okay, this time I knew how. So I turned on the TV and that program started over. No, I don't have a recording device. And no, it wasn't on the schedule. And no, it can't do that. I got it, but it did. So it scared me. And I thought, okay, I need to watch this. So I watched it and it went badly. The guy yelled at his family and it didn't do any good. And after it was over, it it freaked me out enough that I didn't go anywhere. I went to bed. When I went to bed, I went to hell. And what I mean by that is, I didn't know where I was. It felt like I was out of body somewhere, in a dark theater, and I was alone, except all on the stage were all these scenes from my life going by, not fast but slowly, all focused on suffering, the suffering that had been inflicted on me as a kid, all the way up through the suffering I had inflicted on everybody else as a, you know, an addict and and all the rest and after a long time, a voice said, it is enough. I woke up and <clears throat> the sun was shining in my bedroom window, which was weird because the windows faced west. So I got up and it was five o'clock Saturday afternoon. So I'd been somewhere for nearly 18 hours and I, I realized that I'd been invited to change. I had no idea what I was gonna do or how to do any of it, but it was it was a two by four. It's like, okay, I'm done. So I threw away $1,000 worth of drugs I had laying around and I quit, cold turkey. And uh, never, that was it, I was done. And that was the first half, it got me sober, but it didn't do anything to deal with how I got there in the first place, which was my real addiction, which was to self-loathing. A need to hate myself. Right. That happened two weeks later. So because of the positions I had, I used to get free stuff. Like when you're a high level executive, people from other companies and CEOs and stuff, they give you stuff because they want you to like them. Right. So one of the things I got was a pair of tickets to see Yo-Yo Ma, which you probably know who that is. And I'm single again for the third time. And I'm like, yeah, be ashamed to waste this ticket. So I ask in the groups that I manage who likes classical music. And some lady in one of the groups said, well, I do. And I said, have I ever given you anything before? And she said, no. I said, okay, fine. See there. So I gave her the ticket. We met at the venue. The concert was spectacular. And halfway through, you got to remember, I'm two weeks stone cold sober at this point. Halfway through, I had this feeling like I re- recognized from a couple weeks before. And the voice said in my head, you need to marry this woman. And I said, you're insane. I've screwed that up three times. And I obviously don't know how to do this. So we're not doing that. Later that night, we were backstage because they were backstage passes. And the voice came back and said, yeah, <clears throat> and you need to tell her tonight. So I freaked out thinking, okay, she can have me arrested for harassment because she works in one of my groups. And I don't even know if she has a boyfriend. I mean, this is not happening, right? But you don't win those arguments. So I did. And it went about like you would have expected. Are you out of your mind? What are you talking about? But within two weeks, she had her own set of experiences. She quit her very nice career. And I walked away for millions of dollars of contracts. We walked off into the sunset together, not having a clue what we were going to do. And four and a half months ago, we celebrated our 14th wedding anniversary. Now, the reason that matters isn't, I mean, the love story and everything else. Yeah. But the thing that was important, is she was literally the angel that was sent to help me learn how to be a person. She taught me how to be a friend. She taught me how to have a friend. She taught me how to tell the truth, stuff I'd never done in my life. And so that all happened within two weeks of each other. In that month, in 2007, and from that day forward, I walked away from the entire industry, started all over, created a business, writing and coaching and doing all the stuff that I do now because... God had the kindness to issue one more invitation to change. I mean, we feel those all the time, right? But I most—I always ignored them—the the yearnings and the feelings we have about stuff. I ignored it all, and that one was pretty loud. And fortunately, I said okay, and so that changed the entire direction of my life. And here we are.
0: Well, it's very powerful story that you shared with us. So Let's actually switch to a second question, which is the tools that you use to overcome. Before you give me the answer, I just wanted to tell our audience and you as well that this is one of my favorite part of the show. Before I started this podcast, I had no idea who was going to come to my show, who was going to talk about the adversity, but then the tools that I've been asking for the past 40 shows being so powerful and like inspiring and i've used some of the tools that my guest suggested and it really helped me as well so what would you say the tools that you use that help to for you to overcome your adversity
1: number one i learned to meditate meditation and learning to be still with yourself is probably one of the most important not probably is one of the most important tools. Number two, I made some changes and learned to love myself. Uh, uh, so I had a, a real need to hate myself before. And I went, I went to see counselors for the first time. So I learned to meditate. I made a choice to tell the truth instead of lying to myself and everybody around me. I chose to get help. And that meant finding some shrinks to talk to and talk about what had happened for 40 years that i hadn't ever spoken to anyone about and listen to them and 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 i also learned to ignore what i had been taught by my my mom in terms of what i was worth and that has to do with this self-love, like to value myself as, a, as an intentional creation. I, I'm the sovereign. I get to control the direction and purpose of my life. So those are, those are some of them. Beyond that, I changed, uh, made sure I exercise. I have a morning ritual every day, and I use the acronym SPEM, which stands for spiritual, physical, emotional, and mental. And I help clients that I coach with to create a ritual of of that works for them. It's not prescribed, but it's like intentionally create yourself how you want to be for the day. And that creation of a morning ritual, learning to meditate, choosing to get help, learning to tell the truth, and learning to trust and be vulnerable before I was like completely closed and would tell whatever story I needed to and, you know, just ignore everything else. So those are some of the like five things that have been absolutely critical uh, in terms of changing uh, who I was and rewriting the narrative or writing the future of the narrative. You can't rewrite the past. And one other things really important, and that is, There's a truth that I used to overlook and that I see a lot of people overlook, and that is the future, starting with the very next second, is a blank page. It is not an extension of the past unless you allow it to be so. And internalizing the power of that truth has been monumental in learning to love myself and dismissing old stories you know what i mean and in taking control of the levers of my life to create what i want instead of what i'm supposed to do or what i'm worth or worthy or any of that other nonsense that all comes from back there somewhere
0: i love the last part that you said that your future is in your control 100%. Hundred percent. And a lot of us, as a survivor, I have to say that we sometimes, you know, like what you said about self sabotage, manifest this drama and this word uh, dramatizing. So something happens, but you make it you you make it worse. Like you kind of. You know instead of like brushing off like you kind of make it worse but then because of the magnitude of abuse that you have experienced you don't know better you don't know how to get out of it you don't know how to get an air when you are drowning so i would say the last part especially what you said about you do have the power for your future you don't know what's going to happen and then so why would you manifest something bad to happen and then keep sabotaging your life
1: one of the things that i found really helpful is uh, because of the way i was raised everything was either black or white perfect or rotten you know what <clears throat> let me invite you to do something one percent better tomorrow just one percent less fear, 1% less a doormat, 1% less negative self-talk, just 1%. Just notice it and turn turn the knob down 1%. And then do that again and do that again. Now Anybody can do 1%. Well, if you keep doing that in 100 days, it's 100%. I mean, it's not like the 100 days are going to pass either way, right? And so when I, I used to try all or nothing, like set goals, like all or nothing. And if I didn't make it, oh, you suck, you know, and I beat on myself. And the answer is, yeah, you're never going to get there that way. So go for 1% and then one more and then one more. Because 100 days is like, what, three months?
0: That is very, very, very powerful, Kellen. So, yeah, I I really appreciate you coming here and then talk about your adversity and the tools that you use because it's nothing more powerful than somebody who understands the trauma who talk about the tools that can actually work. So I appreciate that so much. Now, when you say you're coaching people, helping people discover their potentials and stuff, do you find that to be your healing or joy to see your client change from this spectrum to this spectrum? Um,
1: All the money I made and all the big whoop-de-doo positions I had before don't even begin to compare with how it feels to be the catalyst, to help someone see something they didn't see before, to help them believe in themselves, to make a commitment and then keep it to, to truly change how they see themselves because that is the key to everything. You can have anything you want. You can have anything you want. The only thing you need to do is figure out who you need to be to create that outcome, okay? It, lots of times we we think, okay, I have to do this and do this and do this. It's like a person who's overweight, I was he- very heavy at one point in my life, and when you go, if when I, you go at it with, okay, I got to exercise, I got to change my diet, and I got to force all this stuff, it's like a white knuckle ride. Okay, if instead you, you change your mindset to, I am a healthy person, I honor my body, I love my my container that holds my spirit, and I really want to be this vibrant, healthy person then, well, of course I don't eat that crap because I'm this. And so changing how you're thinking and how you're feeling, that's, that's 95%. And the doing part is like 5%. But we focus on the doing part without changing this. And so it's like trying to drag a rock uphill, a great big rock. Change how you're thinking and feeling. Do that work. That's why meditation and all of that stuff is so powerful. Because if you change what you believe about yourself, doing something different is easy. Because I don't believe that old crap anymore.
0: It's very, very resonating to me. It's, I, I just don't, I just don't have word how to describe when somebody is so severely abused and traumatized and have that shift to see yourself as somebody valuable, somebody with potential and truly be able to internalize and be able to move on to your future. That is so difficult. That is just, I don't know how, you know, how many years that I suffered. And then I don't know if I'm really completely overcame my trauma because some some of the days I do that. But interestingly, I was talking to one of a millionaire friend and I I asked him, please teach me how to be a millionaire. He's a real estate developer. And he's like, "Chiri." You have to start within yourself, and you have to believe that you are strong, and you're beautiful, and you're enough. If you can't do that, you cannot be a millionaire. <laughs> and they, that always said, I was hoping that okay, come to my real estate development that I'm doing, like you no know, hundred doors, and I'll show you how to build houses. He never said that. He said you need to change internally and believe in yourself and you have to know that you're beautiful and you're strong and you're enough and i did not know that
1: that's that's 90 99% of the battle the doing part is easy it really is easy when you believe if there's a conflict between what you want and what you believe you deserve what you believe you deserve a win every time. As soon as you believe something different, what you want will just show up. The belief is 99% of the power.
0: I cannot agree with you more. And I've experienced that. Like I'm 45 years old and, and I have to admit my first marriage, I sabotaged. It was a great marriage, but I just sabotaged because I just couldn't take the happiness. I think. And then, you know, If I cannot change myself, I would keep attracting this drama and uh, keep sabotaging my life.
1: I know you would because I did that. (laughs) I, I did that until I quit doing it. And it would not have quit on its own. I didn't do that, you know the the what it what that all that divine stuff demonstrates to me is that how important each one of us is because there's nothing special about me i'm not any more important than anybody else so if that invitation is extended to me then it's good for everybody we can all have this i'm i'm you know nothing if i if there was ever a candidate to be left behind at the bottom of the canyon you know i was it 52 years old, a a disaster by all measures, regardless of how much money I made, a personal disaster. And the opportunity was still extended.
0: Well, Kellen, I want to move on to the last question, which is a gift that came from your adversity. So how would you describe our audience? What was the gift that came from the adversity?
1: People ask me often, Kellen, if you could go back and change one thing and all that sort of thing, I wouldn't change anything at all. I've been through hell. I have come out the other side, and the gift has been I love myself. I love my life. I'm married to an angel. I trust that life unfolds as it should, like completely to the core of my being. I know that's mumbo jumbo you hear all the time, but I live in that. It has given me patience. It has given me insight. I live in a state of perpetual joy. Like there's nothing that could bother me. And I live in that place. And I wouldn't be there without that trauma, drama, and adversity. There's no way I would understand what I understand and be who I am without that. So I wouldn't trade it for anything. And the gift is the joy that I have. Now on the other side.
0: That is so beautiful. Well, thank you so much. Before you leave our podcast, can you please tell our audience your advice if somebody is going through adversity right now?
1: If you're struggling right now with self-worth or with some kind of addiction or you're in some kind of abusive situation, if you're in an abusive situation, your first responsibility is to get out. Get out. Get help right now. I don't care what you're afraid of. I don't care. Don't be stupid like I was. Go get some help. Go do that, right? Like right now, tonight today, whenever this podcast comes out. Get out of a dangerous or abusive situation. You can't do anything until you're physically safe. The second thing to do is start working on that self-love, that worthiness. And I don't care who you have to talk to, a counselor, two counselors, a priest, whatever it takes so that you can begin to see the glimmer of worth. Because if you've been in an abusive situation, one of the most worst things that happens is the the constant attack on your value because when someone abuses you 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 internalize the idea that somehow there must something must be wrong with me because of how they're treating you that's just not true So get out of the situation and get some help. And the third thing is know this. I don't care where you've been. I don't care how long it's been. I don't care what has happened. It is never too late. Never under any circumstances is it too late, too far, never. You can start today, right now, right where you are. That is an absolute certainty. So that's what I would say.
0: Thank you. I absolutely want to echo with you and I want our audience to know the reason why I started this podcast and I give from my book and the guests such as Callan coming to speak about the adversity is to let you know that you're not alone and there is a help and that you are not crazy you are in a situation where you didn't have a choice and you should know that by now that there are so many ways that you can help yourself reaching out. Mental health talk is getting more and more normalized, which I would like to see more. So I can't thank you enough, Kellen, for coming to my podcast tonight and sharing all of your experiences and wisdom, love, and kindness.
1: You're welcome. And again, I want to honor you for the work that you're doing to add good to the world. Thank you. Happy to be here and happy to connect with anybody that wants to chat. And I honor you for the work that you are putting your heart into.
0: Thank you so much. Well, thank you to our audience for checking out another episode of Gift from Adversity. Have a wonderful night.